A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi listeners, Benjamin here. We're coming to the end of 2020 and, well, what a year it's been. We made a lot of podcasts from our kitchens, living rooms, basements in South London and in this special clip show, the team will be picking out a few of their favourites and telling us why they enjoyed making them. First up, it's Dan Fox. The piece I've chosen is about Vikings and I've picked it Because not only is it a fascinating study into the genetic diversity of the people coming out of and going into Scandinavia in the Viking era, but also because my 10-year-old self would think it was so cool that I was making podcasts about Vikings, after I explained what a podcast was to a child in 1995. Like a lot of ancient history, the facts are a little more complicated than pop culture would have you believe, and one of the first things I learned making this is that it's actually pretty hard to define what a Viking is at all. So, from our 16th of September episode, here's Dan's podcast pick of 2020. Vikings hold a particular grip on our popular culture. Films, comic books, operas and pop songs have all been written about these ancient, blonde-haired barbarian raiders. Now... Most of what I just said is based more on Marvel comics rather than historical fact, but what do we actually know about who the Vikings were? Broadly speaking, the Viking Age is defined as the 300 years from about 750 to 1050 AD, and the Vikings themselves as the people living in or moving out of Scandinavia at that time. That is how we usually define it by these people who, who move out and migrate. But actually, there's there's quite a lot more to it. There's a lot more interaction, people going back and forth, a lot of people coming back into Scandinavia as well. And that's what makes the picture a bit more complicated and difficult to say what a Viking really is. This is Kat Jarman, an archaeologist specialising in Viking history. Given that it's even hard to define exactly what a Viking is, I asked her what we do know about the Viking Age. So we know that there's a lot of movement going out of Scandinavia in this time period, and we see this uh, in a lot of the archaeological materials. Part of the problem we have is that we don't really know that much about the actual people involved in terms of how many are physically moving out of Scandinavia. We don't know how many of these objects, grave goods, town settlements are actually uh, founded by people and how many are a result of just more sort of cultural diffusion, I, I guess. So the question is really, what are the actual people doing in this time period? What's the populations looking like? Where are they going? Um, what are the sort of finer structures within that? So how much did the Vikings move around? Well, a paper published this week in Nature may have some answers. Martin Sikora is one of the authors. 
and he explained to me how he and his colleagues are trying to answer this question using ancient DNA taken from archaeological specimens. In a way, it's, it's quite similar to modern genetic studies that look at you know population diversity and, and, and try to investigate differences uh, and similarities between populations. The only difference is that we do this back in time. Martin and his colleagues have sequenced the genomes of 442 humans from archaeological sites across Europe and Greenland in the hopes of gaining a better understanding of the Viking Age and how Vikings themselves moved around. So we find that the individuals from, from Norway mostly went to, to the North Atlantic. So we find uh, Norwegian-like ancestry in, in, in Orkney and the Faroe Islands in Iceland and in Greenland and to a large extent uh, and in Ireland. We find Danish ancestry is very present in England, which is also, of course, in line with the uh, historical records. And Swedish-like ancestry is very much present in Eastern Europe, so in, uh, across uh, the Baltic Sea, in, in, in the Baltic area, and also in Poland and Russia, where we, where we do have samples from. For Kat, this study was particularly interesting, as it illustrated not only where the Vikings spread to, but where they came from. For me, I think the most uh, important thing is actually looking at some of the dynamics of going inwards to Scandinavia. So they have, for example, they have pointed out that uh, there are people moving from Southern Europe into Scandinavia in this time period, which is something that we've not really had a lot of evidence uh, for before. There's a lot of objects going in, there's a lot of things being traded, but actually to have some evidence of people moving north and from Southern Europe especially is really, really exciting. Martin's work is also hinting at the extent of a cultural influence the Vikings had at the time. They've got individuals as well with uh, Pictish ancestry uh, from the Orkney Islands who are buried with what we would typically define as sort of Viking or Scandinavian artefacts, but actually who have got quite a, a different ancestry and genetic history. And that sort of thing, for me as an archaeologist, is, is very exciting because it's adding to something that we can't find from the typical archaeological record. Despite her excitement, Kat does worry that the paper may overgeneralise in some of its conclusions. They are trying to make some generalizations over a very long time period, so um, several hundred years and a very, very large geographical region. They aren't able to break anything down chronologically, um, which is a bit of an issue because you can't necessarily assume that what happens right at the start of the Viking Age uh, corresponds to what happens in, in 1050 or you know after the turn of the millennium. And I think that is simplifying things a, a bit too much in a way that isn't very helpful. Martin, however, thinks that geographically the sample is representative. Where he would most like to have more data is from the preceding Iron Age. There is just not that much data yet available across Europe from the Iron Age to be able to say conclusively what changes happened before from the Iron Age to the Viking Age in those different regions. We can, you know, we have some in our data set and we, we, we already see some interesting patterns. But in order to confirm that or, or more thoroughly test it, we would need some more sampling from the preceding time periods. While Martin would like to expand the data set, Kat thinks the next steps should be to drill deeper into some of the examples highlighted in this paper. I think there's an awful lot to unpack from this study, and there's a lot of data there that's really, really exciting. I think what needs to be done now is actually to look at each of these case studies in detail, combine it with all the other evidence, which is something obviously they haven't been able to do yet. So I think once we, we take this evidence and break it down, look at things like gender they haven't looked at, uh, and again, also chronological uh, patterns, 
that's, I think, when uh, we get something really, really important and significant about the Viking Age. So I feel like this is an, a really hugely exciting starting point of data, but now that there's a sort of real work thing of, uh, of trying to then put it into more context. For now, though, our next steps may be to put some old Viking stereotypes to bed. It's not that we, we find that the, you know, the Vikings yeah, were these very, very tight-knit communities in most places where it's only very, very homogeneous Scandinavian ancestry and like the blonde, blue-eyed warriors that go around. But actually, in many places, there's a, a, a large amount of diversity and there's a lot of influx from different regions. So, so I think it goes in line with what we have learned about human population history also from from other ancient dna studies i think that the past was just much more dynamic than we might have appreciated before that was martin sikora from the university of copenhagen in denmark you also heard from kat jarman from the museum of cultural history in oslo norway next up on this special roundup show we've got lizzie gibney with her podcast pick of the year So the story that I picked, I've chosen it because I think it's really inspirational. It's about a country, the United Arab Emirates, that had only ever put a satellite into orbit, but then decided that in six short years, they would send an orbiter to Mars, which is a much bigger challenge. And this year, they did it. How they got there wasn't magic. You know, they had a lot of help. But I think it's really exciting because... They're hoping that in rising to that challenge, they'll not only collect some really useful Martian data, but the mission itself will have a lasting and much wider impact on science in general in the UAE. From our 8th of July show, here's Lizzie's report on the UAE's first mission to Mars. This year, you're going to hear a lot about Mars. Several space agencies around the world are launching missions to the Red Planet. It may surprise you to hear that the United Arab Emirates is one of them. A team here is planning to launch an orbiter that will study the Martian atmosphere. But what makes this mission remarkable is that it's coming from a space agency that is just six years old. The UAE, nor any other Arab nation, has ever launched a planetary mission before. I've come to the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Centre in Dubai to hear more about this audacious mission. First up, I spoke to Sara Al-Almiri, Deputy Project Manager and Science Lead for the mission. When I first heard about this mission, my impression was, that sounds crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you wouldn't be the only one. We, we do get that a lot because, one, we're a new country that has entered into the space race, and it was something that was audacious. But for us, it's a necessity. So the UAE is going to Mars. Where did the idea first come from? So the idea of going to Mars started at a ministerial retreat towards the end of 2013, where the government re-looks at the general strategy and direction that the government's going down and sets its priorities and objectives. And it was in that retreat that His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, who was the Prime Minister of the UAE and also the ruler of Dubai, discussed the idea of going to Mars as a means by which we can challenge the development of science and technology skills across the board and elevate that and be a country and a nation who's able to design and develop complex systems. And it was from there that the team at the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center was tasked with looking at how do we get to Mars? How do you design and develop a mission there? How are you going to develop the capabilities around that? And most importantly, how are you going to get there before the 2nd of December 2021? Of course, the 2nd of December 2021 is the 50th anniversary of the creation of the UAE as a nation. And how ambitious was this plan? How much experience had the UAE already in going to space? 
So the UAE has been a user of space systems since the 80s, and we've transitioned designing and developing spacecrafts in 2006. So late 2013, beginning of 2014 was sort of a midpoint journey for us in developing Earth observation satellites. And it was at that point that we took the experience that we had from Earth observation, built on it with knowledge partners, and moved towards developing this uh, the HOPE probe. And so what will the HOPE probe do at Mars? So the HOPE probe for the very first time will give us a full understanding of the weather of Mars that occurs in the lower atmosphere of Mars. And we'll be studying most of the major constituents within the lower atmosphere to better understand what happens to water vapor there, what happens to the dust storms. And more importantly, what we also want to look at is atmospheric loss, the loss of hydrogen and oxygen from the top of the Martian atmosphere. And this allows us to have a more holistic understanding of the planet and how it's lost its atmosphere and also the dynamics of the atmosphere as a whole. Now, why is that different? Why is it novel than other missions? Because we all know about what, what makes up the atmosphere of Mars. We know about the temperatures. But prior to this, missions have looked at it not throughout an entire day. So looked at it during two time slots of the day, either 2 a.m., 2 p.m. And for us, we'll be able to cover all of Mars during all times of the day throughout an entire year and give us a full understanding of what really happens and what are the dynamics that occur on that planet it was very important for us to fit into an area of science that was not relevant to the UAE only, but it was relevant to the global science community. And that allowed us to send a mission for the very first time that was not only a declaration of the UAE arriving to Mars, but rather a mission that has global impact and has global outcomes and addresses some of the questions that scientists have posed about Mars, but don't have a mission that's going there to address that. And what have some of the impacts of the mission been? I don't believe there were many planetary scientists here maybe uh, five, six years ago. So when we started with this mission, even at the center, we didn't have a space science department. We didn't have researchers that are working in this area. We definitely did not have scientists that have been developed to handle that. And what this has stimulated was, one, an interest for people to enter into natural sciences, especially physics and mathematics, and expanded the career options and opportunities that were there. Now you see more roles coming up that are based on research. One of the key hopes of the mission is to encourage young Emiratis into science. And when the mission first started, the team behind it actually had an average age of 27 themselves. I spoke to another member of this young team, Omran Sharaf, who's the project director. He was able to tell me more about the mission's goals and also show me a glimpse of the spacecraft itself. I think that is the, uh, the HOPE probe itself yes. that I can just see through two sets of windows. Yes, that's the HOPE probe. Uh, As I peered through the windows, I could see the HOPE probe, although it was actually wrapped up for transport, looking like a huge present. But beneath the silvery covering, the probe consists of a hexagonal orbiter, about the size of an SUV. It's got a big dish on top to communicate with Earth and wide solar panels to charge its batteries. Omran explained to me some of the many protective features on board the craft. We have a spacecraft that's covered in ESD wrapping, especially ESD wrapping, to protect it from any environmental contamination. And underneath the wraps you can see the MLIs, which is used for thermal control. You're not taking any chances with this probe? None. 15% of the missions that have been to Mars have failed. Mars is difficult, Mars is challenging, and Mars is risky. So we had to learn from somewhere. 
So based on the requirements that was given to us, which was one of them to learn from others and not start from scratch, we were able to identify the University of Colorado at Boulder to work with us on the mission and be our main uh, know-how transfer partner. And the university was the right kind of partner that had the right mindset, the right team culture that was able to help us move forward. And how did that collaboration work? Was it a case of one university doing one instrument, another doing another instrument, or what kind of a relationship was it? So one of the ways that helped us also expedite and speed the process of delivering the mission concept uh, was the fact in which we actually had the experts from different organizations and partners. That happened through collaboration. You had teams from different organizations integrated with each other. So the team functioned as an Emirates Mars mission team. It didn't function as separate entities or separate organizations. And that was the important side of the the, the project that helped us move forward fast, build on the experiences of others, facilitate knowledge transfer and know-how transfer, and have everyone speak the same language and march towards a common goal. What were the main requirements then when the government asked you to go to Mars? What were the the main things that they wanted from this mission? So we received a few important requirements from the Prime Minister himself. The first requirement was we need to reach Mars before the 2nd of December 2021 because of the 50th anniversary. We want to celebrate with a very big achievement. The second requirement was build it, don't buy it. Third requirement was learn from others, don't start from scratch, and the science has to be novel. And the last requirement was we need to create a big shift in different sectors in the UAE to help create the ecosystem required to build a sustainable science and technology sector in the UAE that will help uh, strengthen a knowledge-based economy, a competitive, innovative and creative knowledge-based economy. Missions to Mars generally are pretty risky and about 50% of them historically have failed. What do you think the chances are that the team will pull this off? So as a team, we all are optimistic about the mission and looking forward for February 2021 when we reach Mars. That was Omran Sharaf, project manager of the UAE's Hope Mars mission. You also heard from Sarah Alamiri, the mission's science lead. Head over to the show notes where you'll find some links with more info on this and the other two missions that are currently speeding through space on their way to Mars. Now, 2020 will likely stand out in the history books for one reason in particular, and needless to say, that is the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, something we, of course, spent a lot of time covering this year. And it's the subject of Noah Baker's pick, and he's here to tell us more. 2020 has been a year of firsts across the world for everyone, including here at Nature. It's been a year where the word unprecedented has become kind of meaningless at this point from overuse and so when Ben asked me to think about something that stood out to me from the podcast my mind immediately went to Coronapod this new show we launched in response to the pandemic and I remember sitting actually in my sister's house at the time which is where I was temporarily camped because I couldn't work from my boat and trying to convince my editors and a few other people that in response to this pandemic where everyone had to start working from home and we had to do things in this unprecedented way, that a good thing to do would be to launch an entirely new piece of content and add to our workload, which involves some convincing, but I am so proud that we did it and I'm so pleased that we did it because I think it's been a really important thing to do, both for nature, for us as a team, and also for our listeners. We've had a lot of feedback where people have thanked us and said that they have found this useful 
if I have to think about one particular episode that really stands out to me, then the one that comes to mind is the very last episode of Coronapod that we made as a standalone show. Of course, now it's part of the main show. But this one stood out to me because it covers several really fascinating and I think important topics. So in the first half, Amy Maxman, who is an amazing reporter who I've been wanting to work with in audio more for a while and managed to find a way to do so through Coronapod, she'd broken a story about an outbreak in San Quentin prison and the way that was being managed, which was new territory, I think, for her to step into to try to really understand the judicial system and how that all linked with science and testing and the public health response. It was a really fascinating story to discuss. And then the second half of the show featured a report from a reporter called Lorna Stewart, and she was discussing how the pandemic, in particular the lockdowns which many people around the world have gone through, might affect the mental health and the development of her young children, which I think is another one of those kind of things that parents have been thinking about across the world. And it seemed like a really important time to tell that story. It's also just a really adorable package. There's recordings of her kids in there who are just absolutely lovely. I think it would be silly to play the entire show in this segment. It's 45 minutes long, but we're going to pull out a couple of clips. It certainly makes me smile, which is a weird thing to do during a pandemic. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. Amy, this week you've been working on a story about San Quentin Prison in California and how the outbreak has been manifesting itself there. Yeah, so right now it's still the third largest outbreak linked to a single facility in the U.S. It might soon be the second largest. There's more than 1,600 people infected. Those are inmates and staff at San Quentin State Prison. And so far, seven have died. And that, of course, is... As cases rapidly mounted, the person who was appointed, it's called a receiver, the person who was appointed by the court to oversee health care in California prisons, he taps UCSF, the group that had been consulting on health care, and says, will you go to San Quentin and take a look, visit, and give some recommendations? Now, there's a lot that they came back with and they learned while they're there. But I think before we talk about that, you actually have a recording from one of those researchers from when you interviewed her. And I think it's really worth playing that out. It's not the greatest quality recording in the world, but what she says, it took my breath away actually when I heard it. Yeah, that sounds good. She's a graduate student at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Ada Kwan. I had never been to San Quentin before. One of the units is called Badger. You walk into the atrium and you are immediately in front of five tiers of jail cells. Some of the windows were open, but there were, we were told that some of the other windows had been welded shut and the fan systems, we were told, hadn't worked for years or so. And so the air that was in there was just circulating. You could feel that the air had been sitting in there for a while. And the ability of the incarcerated to scream and talk through their doors gave us some foreshadowing of how COVID could spread. One of the most striking memories that I have was as we were walking out of that unit, individuals across the tiers were just screaming for our help. And they were just asking us, please help us, please let people know what we're experiencing in here. And I can't imagine the physical toll and the mental toll that all of them are experiencing with every hour being there. 
And when I talked with these researchers, they really see this through the eyes, you know, of, of humans who care, but also of epidemiologists. So when they see that this is an old structure where the fans aren't working, where there's no ventilation, they see stagnant air. And when they talk about how they can hear people yelling out through the grates, they're not just talking about what they're saying. What they're thinking is they're sending out these aerosolized water droplets that we send out when we yell. And that's how the virus travels. We know that. So they're seeing all of this through the lens of like, this is how an outbreak spreads. These are my daughters. Scout is three. And Willow is one. Scout loves dinosaurs. Willow loves everything Scout loves. Preferably everything Scout is holding right now. Lockdown has been hard. Don't get me wrong, we're very fortunate and others have certainly faced greater hardships. But I wonder and worry about whether three months locked inside is going to leave an indelible mark on Scout and Willow's interests, their personalities, and most worryingly, on their mental health. In those early years, children do huge amounts of development, you know, really crucial um, developmental milestones. And we really need to be thinking about what they're missing out on and how that might affect some of those milestones. For Willow, she's already been locked inside for a quarter of her life. And it's a long time for Scout, too. She can barely remember anything from life before lockdown. I'm sure I'm not the only parent wondering about these things. But what evidence is there? Are young children going to be impacted by lockdown in a lasting way? Some clips there from our 10th of July episode of Coronapod. Head over to the show notes where you can find a link to the entire show. And we're going to stick with Coronapod and something that Sharmini Bundell made for the show, which is her pick of 2020. So the story uh, that I've picked is, I mean, I think it's a really huge story. It's not directly about coronavirus, but it's integral to how governments around the world um, and scientists have dealt with coronavirus. It's about communicating. How do we communicate science? How do we communicate what we want people to do? How do we communicate the risks? And I think this is something that everyone sort of comes face to face with in your life. You've got um, social media networks putting little warnings on things about COVID misinformation. You know, you might have relatives sort of passing around posts and info and you're not sure what's accurate. You have governments trying to decide if they tell everyone to stay at home. How long is that going to work for? What are people's responses going to be that? How are people going to interpret the risks? You know, are they going to be willing to wear masks or sort of not see their family members? It really is something that affects all of us. And there is so much interesting psychology and just, you know, the whole field of study is really, really relevant this year more than ever. From our 17th of April edition of Coronapod, here's Sharmini finding out about communicating complex data. It's a science communicator's dream 
suddenly everyone is interested in learning about science. Unfortunately, the reason is because in the midst of a pandemic, accurate scientific information can save lives, and equally, misinformation can kill. How to communicate information effectively with the public is something that's always been important for science. But the researchers who study this kind of communication are finding themselves in increasing demand, as governments and other organisations around the world wonder how best to inform the public of the huge amount of information relating to COVID-19. The latest official evidence of the human cost of coronavirus, coronavirus shows a very sharp rise. The next four weeks. Now of 12,000 cases has gone up to 2,506. And over 20,000 deaths there and more than half a million confirmed infections. We are being bombarded by daily counts of deaths, daily cases, worldwide trends. This is Alexandra Freeman. All of this is described in numbers or in graphs, and it's really important for people to be able to understand it. Alexandra works at the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge in the UK, where she looks at how numbers are communicated. And it turns out, when it comes to risk, the way you present the numbers can really alter people's perception. For example... Alexandra looked at ways to share the results of genetic tests. She found that if a person's likelihood of developing a genetic condition was expressed as a percentage... You have a 20% chance of developing the condition. Someone might think, that's unlikely. But if it's expressed as a frequency... 20 out of every 100 people who have this gene go on to develop the condition. Then it's suddenly perceived as more likely... And the psychological explanation for this is generally because you start really imagining in your mind those 20 times where it might happen. And if it's quite a significant, scary thing that might happen, those 20 times loom quite large in your imagination. Alexandra's recommendation is that anyone who needs to communicate risk should put their figures in both formats to balance out the bias in people's reactions. But one big problem with the figures around COVID-19 is that no one's sure exactly what those figures are. Whether it's the chance of death, the risk of infection or the methods of transmission, there's a lot we don't fully understand yet. Heidi Larson from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in the UK is also interested in how to effectively communicate, in particular when the facts you're communicating aren't certain. The biggest critical factor in the information landscape around COVID-19 is the uncertainty. It's very different when you have a situation like vaccines where there is misinformation against very clear and decisive scientific information. In this case, we don't have that. So how can you communicate facts and figures when you're not really sure what they are? According to Heidi... One mistake that authorities sometimes make is to wait until there is some certainty before saying anything. But this can create worry. If you've ever been stuck in a subway that stops and you're not getting any information and it gets longer and longer, just hearing the voice of someone saying, We're currently stopped at a red signal due to technical difficulties. I'll get back to you as soon as I have more information. Something that gives you some clue, even if it's an uncertain one, helps calm people. Alexandra Freeman also thinks that ongoing and honest communication is important and that people in governments and scientific organisations should listen to the research on this. One of the things we hear a lot is that people are nervous of communicating uncertainty because 
people feel that it will undermine trust. Her team has conducted a study on how different kinds of messages change the public's trust in the person delivering the message. We found that if you communicate uncertainty as precisely as you can, so if you say, for instance, we think it's around 15%, but there's some uncertainty, so it could be between 13 and 17%, then that doesn't undermine people's trust. But if you are more vague about it, it could be a bit higher, it could be a bit lower, then that does undermine people's trust a bit more. Alexandra says it's important to be upfront about uncertainty and as precise about it as possible. And when it comes to information about coronavirus, vague or misunderstood advice can be very dangerous. We tend to divide the world into fact and fiction, when in fact there's a huge amount of ambiguous information in the middle. Heidi gave the example of chloroquine, a drug that various people, including Donald Trump, have described as a potential treatment for COVID-19. Now, it's true that researchers are testing whether chloroquine is effective, but that's not the whole picture. There was a couple in the US who drank something that cleaned their fish tank because they saw that it had chloroquine phosphate in it, and the husband died and the wife became extremely ill. Part of the reason for this tragic event is that people everywhere are desperate for information about possible dangers and possible cures and ways to avoid catching the disease. And if that information isn't available or isn't communicated, then some people turn to less reliable sources. Gargle with an antiseptic in warm water. We need to take more of alkaline foods that are above the pH level of the virus. Drink plenty of hot liquids is an anti-malaria and effectively kills corona. Pass it on to all your family and friends. My mom sends me fake news from Facebook and wonders if this is real or not. This is Sander van der Linden. She showed me a Facebook post of a video of some Chinese scientists who were prosecuted for fraud as it relates to grant applications. That was real. But then the fake news around it was that there was this COVID-19 bar below it suggesting that they were arrested because they've engineered COVID-19. Sander also works at the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication and has a particular interest in the spread of fake news. What's interesting is that misinformation spreads much like a virus. Some research has shown that fake content spreads faster and deeper than true content. Sander suggests that the most successful pieces of misinformation tend to have certain elements in common. It needs to be novel, newsworthy. Often it needs to be emotional, impersonate some credible authority of some sort, of something that looks convincing, and then that gets reshared and reshared. And, and then it, it, it sort of it gains its own truth value. One of the ways in which we judge information to be true or false is by how often we come across it. Many tech and social media companies have announced new policies for trying to stop the spread of fake news, for example, by flagging or removing suspicious content. But Sander and his team are interested in a more proactive method. Fact-checking is all good and well, but you're always behind the curve. It doesn't scale easily. You constantly have to come up with a debunking story. It's very difficult. And one of the problems is that once people are exposed to a myth or falsehood, it lodges in your memory and it's very difficult to correct. Even when you correct it, people continue to rely on the myth, and we know that from lots of research. So we thought prevention is better than cure. It's better to get there first. His team developed a game called Bad News, that teaches people how to make the most effective fake news using common techniques and elements found in viral misinformation. 
Their research, published last year, found that playing the game and taking on the role of a fake news creator made participants more sceptical of fake news. While the bad news game, which is also available online, started off using examples including flat earth theories and anti-vaccination sentiments, it's now also incorporating COVID-19 related stories. When trying to tackle fake news surrounding the epidemic, or when trying to communicate risk or influence behaviour, there's a huge amount of pre-COVID-19 research that could be relevant and used to inform decisions. It can still be difficult, though, to anticipate what the public will do. For example, in the UK, Sanders says the government was worried about implementing a lockdown too soon, as they thought the public would at some point get tired of the restrictions, an idea called behavioural fatigue. I mean, I've been fairly critical of the idea of behavioural fatigue. This was something that informed uh, the UK government's policy, at least in part. And the evidence for that was very weak from behavioural science. Uh, In fact, now we're seeing people are capable of staying inside and complying. In fact, along with a number of behavioural scientists, Sander signed an open letter to the UK government, questioning the evidence around behavioural fatigue. The letter emphasises the importance of an evidence-based approach to policy – and Sander thinks the government could do more to gather evidence before making decisions. Ideally, the government should test, empirically evaluate the messages that they put out there, even when they uh, are in an urgent situation. You could potentially do that within a matter of days. So take the hand-washing example. There has been some concern that if you early on tell people you need to wash your hands, people suffer from what we call single-action bias. So you do one thing, and then you think that that's that's enough, and you um, don't consider the seriousness of the issue. But we could have tested that. The way Sander sees it, the science of communication has a big part to play in combating this epidemic. There's not enough consultation on the communication of risk and evidence. And so much of this crisis is a human uh, psychological uh, crisis as much as it is a biological crisis. It's a bit surprising uh, how little attention is being paid to the actual communication of it. Sander van der Linden there from the Winston Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication. You also heard from his colleague Alexandra Freeman and from Heidi Larson from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Time for one more of our picks of 2020. Well, actually three more in this case, and they're from Nick Howe. Here he is to tell us about them. So this year I did something a bit different. Throughout the year there had been many, well, events where science and politics were thrown together. And when we covered them, there was, well, sort of a reaction from our audience and something, this idea that kept cropping up, and that was that science and politics should be kept separate. As when the two come together, it sort of spells disaster. So I I was curious about this. As someone who's studied for a PhD and been involved in science for years, I could see the appeal of this separation argument. But it also didn't quite seem to tally up with my own experience. So I did some reporting on this and ended up creating a mini-series called Stick to the Science. In episode one, I really wanted to look back at history. How have science and politics interacted in the past? Have they been kept separate? Needless to say, it was uh, complicated. But essentially, no, they were always um, they were always entangled. Here's what Stephen Shapin, a historian of science from Harvard University in the US, had to say on the topic. I think the ideal in terms of deep historical past probably comes from the idea of religious separation from the world 
as a way of producing authentic and valuable knowledge. And here it's very important to bear in mind that the first universities are religious institutions. The cloisters of Oxford and Cambridge are cloisters. So they're a visible reminder of that separation from the world. So it's an ideal. According to Stephen, the idea that science and politics were separate throughout history is murky at best. For him, even the concept of what a government or a state is, is inseparable from science. You think of things like maps. Think of things like statistics. How many people? What kinds of people? What diseases do they suffer from? What do they die from? This is what it is to be a state. And it's also what it is to do science. So, according to Stephen and the other historians I spoke to, there was this intimate connection between science and politics throughout history. But that got me thinking about, you know, the modern day and how politics influences science. And the first thing you think of is funding. And after speaking to a lot of people in this sphere, again, it seems obvious that there is an intimate connection between science and politics. Politics influences how and what science gets funded. And when I was reporting on this, there was one example of this that really stuck out to me. And it was a piece of legislation added to the 1996 US spending bill. It was called the Dickey Amendment. And I found out in episode two how it affected research. And the amendment said that the money that was allocated to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, it said that they can't use that money to advocate for gun control. This is legal scholar Alan Rostron, who used to work for a gun control advocacy. You could interpret that narrowly as meaning you can't fund research to write articles that are basically political propaganda or political advocacy. You can't have funded articles that are specifically saying we should enact this piece of legislation. It's almost like lobbying on behalf of a particular piece of legislation. That would be the narrow interpretation of it, but it is somewhat ambiguous about where exactly it would cross the line into advocating for gun control. From the CDC's perspective, though, it was quite clear what this meant. This was a shot across the bow. This is Mark Rosenberg. He was director of the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, which oversaw gun violence research when the Dickey Amendment was introduced. They also took away all the money that we were using to do the gun violence prevention research. And this sent a clear message to the community that this is not a good area to do research in. It's not a good area to base your scientific career in because there won't be any government funding for it. This is a bit different from saying we don't think your area of study is a priority. The implication, as far as researchers were concerned, is that the research is only a priority if it concludes what we want it to. In fact, according to Mark, the National Rifle Association, the NRA, who had lobbied for the amendment, were quite explicit about this. It was a very direct threat because they said, if you do gun violence prevention research, whether you do it at the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, or whether you give grants to academic researchers to do it, we can make your life miserable. We will write a congressional letter of inquiry, and we will say in the letter that you are promoting and advocating gun control, basically that you're lobbying for gun control. Well, the CDC, we never lobbied 
that was against the law. And so they knew that the letter would be baseless, but it could take weeks or months to respond. And if you're an academic, it could take weeks or months to answer those charges. And this story went on to say how things have changed now. So in 2018, there was an approval in Congress for gun violence research to go ahead and some money along with that. But yeah, for over 20 years, the NRA kept up like a sustained pressure on Congress to limit that research. So the Dickey Amendment to me was a really clear example of how government and politics could influence science. So again, this got me thinking, why are people denying that science is political or trying to say that science shouldn't get involved in politics? And what can we do about it? You know, as a journalist, I like to have a nice sort of story arc. So in the final episode of Stick to Science, I looked at whether some of this is down to how we talk about science. Are we doing something wrong as journalists and communicators? And again, there was something that came up that really stuck out to me. I'd uh, spoken to Deborah Blum, who has been a science reporter for, well, decades. And she was telling me how the issue of climate change, the reporting on that has really changed you know, compared to what it was in the 80s and 90s? At that time, science journalism really followed what I think of as, you know, it was the political model of reporting, right? There's always two sides. Dr. A says this, Dr. B says this, and you didn't really clue the reader into which side was the consensus side so much. It was just there's always two sides to a story, as in the U.S. politics, there's the Democrats and there's the Republicans, and unfortunately, never the twain seems to meet. This so-called political model of reporting exists to help counteract a journalist's bias, to present the argument and let the reader make up their mind. But for a story about climate change, that can cause problems. So a lot of science writers, in order to get, I'm air-quoting this, the other side, you would interview scientists who were funded by the coal industry or the gas industry, but were there to assure you that climate change, you know, was an uncertainty and that, you know, there was not, all scientists didn't believe in it and there was much debate in them. A lot of stuff that turned out to be mostly uh, not reliable information. And it got to the point where Deborah realized that the whole industry of scientific journalism was making a mistake. At some point, we started having a discussion in the National Association of Science Writers, and I was president of that group right in the early aughts of the 21st century. And we started saying, well, we screwed this up, right? We're giving people the inaccurate impression that there's this huge debate when, in fact, there's this growing consensus. And we've just hung the readers out to dry. And we've done that in part because we're covering this like politics. Something had to change, and it did, dramatically. You start to see science writers just write about climate change as if it's a fact. The same way that in the annals of public health, uh, you started seeing seatbelts mentioned in auto accident stories. Were they wearing a seatbelt? Right. And that, to me, represents a profound shift. For Deborah, this shift wasn't a political one. It was just good journalism. If we're good as journalists, we try to cover reality and we owe our readers or listeners or viewers, we owe them reality, right? We owe them an accurate reflection of what's going on. 
not that science gets everything right every step of the way, and so you have to acknowledge that too. But the consensus is squarely that this is real, and we try to reflect accurately where the weight of the evidence is. To Deborah, communicating not just the facts but also the certainty, the level of consensus, that is vital if you want to talk about science objectively and accurately. Smart journalists do their homework. They figure out where the weight of the evidence is, and and they report from that position of scientific strength. And that is actually contrary to what any Republican would tell you in the United States of America. That's actually apolitical reporting. So there are Nick's picks from Stick to the Science. And you heard from Stephen Shapin from Harvard University, Alan Rostron from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, Mark Rosenberg, formerly of the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, and Deborah Blum from the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. So there we have it, a few of our highlights from the last 12 months. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another edition of the regular Nature Podcast. But in the meantime, head over to nature.com slash podcast where you'll find links to all of our shows from this year, which should hopefully tide you over until we return. I've been Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. See you in 2021. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.